0: People ask me how I get across the oceans. Well, it's one day at a time, but quitting is not an option. You just have to not get frustrated out there, not to the extent that one would hang up the oars and say, okay, I'm done. Um, Quitting was not an option. I had to keep going. This
1: is the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun.
2: so there's this new backpacking food company called peak refuel and honestly i I gave them a shot for my last backpacking trip y'all it was literally the best backpacking food i've ever had in my life i was so impressed by them that i wanted to reach out and get a deal for our listeners so if you keep listening to the episode i'll tell you how to save 20 percent off an order with them but until then here's the episode A lot of us dream about doing some grand adventure. I'm not talking about, you know, a weekend marathon or um, something that can be done in a pretty short amount of time. I'm talking about an adventure that is all-encompassing. It is your life for months, if not years. A lot of us wonder what that's like. Today we have a guest who knows exactly what that's like he is the first person to circumnavigate the world all by himself by human power alone think about that he went around this little blue dot in a boat on a bike and on foot with every inch he moved being his very own power if he was lucky nature was helping him along at certain points Have you ever thought about what an adventure that grand might cost you? Yes, financially, but also relationally, mentally, emotionally, your friendships, your marriage, your retirement, your body. What would it cost you to do something like that? And then ask yourself, what would you gain from doing something like that? What if it did cost you nearly everything and you get back after years and... No one really seems to care what you did. No one seems to care that you now have a dozen Guinness World Records. and You can't seem to launch a career off of it. What would that feel like? Erden has a very intriguing story, and I questioned whether we should use it for a Life Outside the Box episode, but as I listened to him and as I went back through to edit, uh, it became clear to me, I, I like to be honest with these episodes, and I like people to... Know what it's really, really like to chase after something with everything you have. And Airden is by no means afraid or questioning whether or not he should do that. So I hope you enjoy. I hope you gain some inspiration, some insight. And I hope that you think about what it is you want to accomplish and what it is you think that it will cost you. Will it be a burden or will it be an investment? We have today uh, an incredible guest. He is the first person in history to complete an entirely solo and entirely human-powered circumnavigation of the Earth. There is so much to unpack there, but he's also done a ton of other things. But he came the first person to row across three oceans. This man has an absolutely stacked resume. In fact, he has 15 Guinness World Records. And his name is Eerdan Erich. Eerdan, welcome to the show, man.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
2: Wonderful. Where are you coming from today?
0: I am in Gig Harbor, in my home office. Oh, perfect.
2: All right. So in the Seattle area. Yes. I mean, you know, you probably get people that just look at you and say, wow, that is unbelievable. You circumnavigated the earth by human power, and by yourself. So you were by yourself during that?
0: I actually like to call it as self-propelled. So I used my own power to propel myself across the oceans and across land. So I did not use a tandem bicycle. I used a single kayak. I was alone on my ocean rows. There's another gentleman by the name of Jason Lewis.
2: So Erdin's audio went out right here for just a second but what he was saying is a guy named jason lewis was the first person to circumnavigate the earth by human power um, but a lot of the sections that he did was with another person and so uh Erdin's making the distinction that he was the first person to do it alone totally solo so pretty cool anyway here's Erdin
0: uh human power and he took 13 years to complete his journey he was done in 2007 he was one of my inspirations uh a person that I actually found out about when I started researching others who had done some things. So he had partners on uh, almost all of his ocean crossings. He used a pedal-driven propeller boat. I had a rowboat. So Guinness had to sort the two, and they said, he's the first and you're the first solo. There we are.
2: Nonetheless, so, so it's not a bitter competition between you and uh, Jason. It's it's a friendly thing, huh? No, oh,
0: yes. I consider him a friend, and when I needed information and help and inspiration, I sent him a note, called him on satellite phone in the middle of the ocean, and he set me straight. <laughs>
2: that's, that's pretty cool, man. That is, that is awesome. So what, where did your idea to do this come from? Like, what's your background? Where are you from? <laughs>
0: I was born in Cyprus, raised in Turkey. I came to the United States in 1986 for graduate studies and the, the, then ended up staying in the United States. Uh, spent six years in Washington DC. Then since 1999, I moved to Seattle. In 1997, when I was working in Silver Spring, Maryland in a software development lab, there was a world map on the wall with Americas on the right, Pacific in the middle, all world on the left. And I traced my finger from EC to Turkey one of these, uh, one of those days. And I said, what if? Could I do this by human power? And that became a quiet obsession. I quickly found out I shouldn't share this idea with everyone. So, select few, you know, I, people were trying to size me up. Has this been done before? Have you done anything like that before? I just didn't have time for that kind of conversation. And I started reading books. One of the books that I read was *Ultimate High*, uh, about the journey of Yoram Krop from Sweden to Nepal, where he towed his climbing gear behind him on a trailer, uh, and he made it to the base of Everest, carried, carried all his gear, and then climbed it in 1996. Yeah, he was famous for that. I met him in 2001 during a a presentation that he gave in Seattle, Washington. And the first two questions he asked me were, when are you starting, do you have sponsors? So that's really, (laughs) that was the, yeah, swift kick I needed to get going. And then I ran into Neuron, February 2002 again, in URA, Colorado during an ice climbing trip. He asked me, haven't you started yet? I gave it my excuses, September 11, you know, is the world a safe place? And sponsorships were not happening as I would have hoped. So I was essentially waiting for affirmation from potential sponsors to support my journey. But then September 2002, when we had the chance to go climbing together for the first time, while we were rock climbing in eastern Washington, he fell on a short, Route and he died at that point. I said, Life is short. I have to go. And there were no more excuses.
2: Oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. That's a lot to handle.
0: I, on the way back from his funeral, I drew the world map on a piece of paper. I marked the highest summits on each continent other than Antarctica. I called that Six Summits Project that I would take off and reach the summits, these summits by human power like he had climbed Everest. And so the accident happened in September. I decided in November, uh, February 1st, 2003, I was bicycling north from Seattle with studded tires, towing my climbing gear all the way to Alaska to climb Mount McKinley. That was the first summit to do. And uh, two other friends joined me south of uh, the mountain, And we walked in the length of Kahiltna Glacier. Everyone flies to Kahiltna Base Camp. We walked for two weeks the length of the glacier, got there. Two other friends joined with additional supplies, and we marched on to the summit, made the summit on 29th of May. And then I hurried off the mountain and flew off, flew from the base camp back to Kahiltna. Uh, so i had to make it i had my fiancee nancy coming and we were going to get married in homer alaska so i married her she flew home i bicycled back there you go so she is special <laughs>
2: wow you <laughs> so that was your honeymoon huh I was bicycling back alone she yeah she is special and i feel like i get a lot of crazy ideas like that and i thank god that my wife is patient with me and lets me just dream about whatever I want to do and lets me do it, usually. And, yeah, that that takes a special person.
0: She's often said to my face that not everyone would put up with me, so I agree.
2: <laughs> well, man, that, well, thankfully, not everyone has to. Just her. Um, so it sounds like part of the inspiration of your friend was the fact that he didn't say that was a stupid idea when you started. <laughs> His first questions were, when are you starting, yeah, had, and do you have sponsors? That's So that immediately probably drew you to him, huh?
0: Yeah. When we find the right people, they ask the difficult questions. Uh, those were tough questions I didn't have answers for, and I still muddled along until I ran into him again that winter. Um, we have plenty of excuses in our lives. As we go through life, we have our dog, we have our mortgage, we have whatever commitments, career uh, things that hold us down, it takes a major commitment and a decision. It's, we, have, we make choices as we go in life. And then when we look back, we are the total sum of all the decisions we made until that point. Knowing that we can't change the past, but we can certainly learn from it and make decisions, better decisions going forward.
2: Wow. So with that question with the sponsors, were you able to find sponsors or you have to fund it yourself?
0: Um, when I reached out to Joran's sponsors after his death, saying I'm going to do this in his memory, I didn't hear back, but I wasn't going to make any excuses anymore, so I cashed out my 401k and started. And in 2006, 2005-2006 winter, I took time to, uh, I obtained a boat from Ocean Rowing Society, I had found out uh, earlier, and that boat arrived in 2004. I reconditioned that, took that to Lisbon, rode as a two-person team from there to Canary Islands. From Canary Islands, I continued from uh, Las Palmas to Island of Guadalupe and uh, took 96 days to row across the Atlantic Ocean solo. That was my preparation. Then I felt ready and took on the circumnavigation 2007 forward. By the time I had done the Atlantic, I... Had some credibility until then, people perhaps were not taking me seriously. <laughs> and I uh, was able to find a strong sponsor out of Turkey. And with their support, I started. And, uh, the sponsorships fell short. We ended up with my wife uh, paying half the cost of all the expeditions since 2003 until I was done in 2012 summer. So it turned out to be a half-million-dollar project. Half of it we paid out of our own pocket, and we still raised about $120,000 in donations and applied for two educational projects. Um, When I started this journey, uh, when I committed to this journey after Joran's passing, I didn't want that to turn into a chest-beating exercise. I wanted to create projects do do good for society, and we set up a non-profit organization. We call that Around and Over. I originally had the idea that I would, um, go west and approach Everest from the north, descend the south, keep going. So the name Around and Over dates back before Yoran's accident. I had that name in my mind. And that became the name for our non-profit Around and Over. Wow. It, it gave us a good, good, the structure, I thought. I was able to recruit friends. Uh, they became our board members. Uh, they helped as best they could. And with that nonprofit as the um, vehicle, I was able to get into schools, do presentations, talk to children about setting goals, uh, having the courage to begin, audacity to say, I can. <laughs> persevere and not quit all of those basic ideas about taking on big projects I tried to relay to them with examples from the journey
2: do, are you do you ever get tired of talking about it to people
0: I no. Um uh, the one thing that I noticed is during the journey it's, it happened organically because I arrived in a yellow, seven-meter or 24-foot rowboat were <laughs> yeah. the far shores, and everybody needed to know what the story was. I passed through towns with a loaded bicycle, or I hiked across Papua New Guinea. All of these, or kayaked along the shores, all of these meant, hey, here's a person different, and he's not a tourist. Is on admission, we know that. It's obvious. They had to know. They would ask questions. I would need help. And everyone that I needed showed up along the way. And it's like Joseph Campbell says, there are those doors ahead of us that invisible hands open as we make progress toward our uh, destiny, toward our bliss. <laughs> that really was what the journey provided for me
2: what was an example of one of those doors being opened for you that you didn't foresee
0: well um sometimes we don't know that those doors are there because by the time we get there they're open we just cruise through and mm. leave it behind <laughs> in a way it's a uh, perhaps call it spiritual call it faith uh you just carry on trusting that everything will forward and when I came back to civilization after the journey uh, it was a bit different though uh, every everyone had moved on my friends had it had their careers advanced uh, they, their children had grown uh, the connection uh, took time to restore I felt out of balance i felt i didn't belong i couldn't tell the story as easily i when i reached out to various media outlets, it was it felt as if i was waving my hands saying hey here look what i've done and that felt wrong and uh, i shut down i had a long uh, downward spiral. It was a pretty depressing period that took about a year, year and a half to snap out of. And it's easier to talk about it now than it was during the journey. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, after the journey. During the journey, it was so much easier. After the journey, it was not as easy.
2: So like I said before, Peak Refuel is a new company making freeze-dried food, and it's literally the best freeze-dried meals I've ever had. You can use it for backpacking, camping, hunting, whatever you want to use it for. And these folks are the real deal. They spent over two years researching the market and creating the perfect recipes, and it is just absolutely awesome. I used the meals on my last guided trip, and the people on the trip could not even believe that it was freeze-dried food. Literally, you put a cup of water in. It's like a cup or a cup and a half. It's, it's not very much water. And it tastes like it came from a restaurant. That's how good it is. If you're interested in ordering some yourself, you can get 20% off by going to peakrefuel.com and use ASP20 at checkout. I encourage you, go get some, try it for yourself. It's amazing. You know, we we, we like to talk about on that on this show that It's not a storybook. Uh, It's not like a children's book all the time where everything is just wrapped up nicely um, and you do this amazing trip and then your life is, you know, you have a career, a book launch and speaking engagements. These types of experiences, these very long experiences where you're away from people for long periods of time can be very, very difficult to come back after that. And I did not know that. I haven't read that anywhere about you. And so I'm glad you shared that. What, what did you do to get over it? Just Did you just need time to get used to living back in normal life?
0: Uh, the Yes, certainly time was the best healer. I had to look for ways to ground myself. I had to look for ways to get physical again. In my depression, I had stopped cold turkey and that... Uh, Lack of exercise also was getting to me. Perhaps uh, the endorphins lacking, that addiction that I had, <laughs> was to be sustained, and I wasn't. And I wasn't looking after myself. I wasn't taking care of myself. So I had to carve out time for myself, make a another conscious decision to uh, prioritize my own health and mental health as well when I came back when I couldn't tell the story I felt it, and that included book launches and speaking engagements and media coverage all of it none of it happened so there was a crash of expectations and that was part of the problem and uh, all during the journey uh, and certain media outlets had waited. Because I said I was going to do a circumnavigation, they weren't going to write about it until I got done with my circumnavigation. Halfway through my circumnavigation, I had become the first person to have rowed three oceans, and I was had become the leading ocean rower in the world with most days at sea, uh, uh, most miles at sea, all of that. And they would still not write about it. So there was... And I had this non-profit. It had to be visible for it to get uh, public support because the story had to reach others so that they would find a reason to support it and give me the reason to continue. Uh, All these expectations of coverage did not happen. So I felt alone. Without coverage, there is no justification for sponsorships because they look for visibility. That's the reason why they support a given expedition. Uh, And so the cycle was broken. So I had to do the expedition, get coverage, have the sponsor name to be visible so that they would justify further support. And when that cycle broke, I felt alone. And all I could do when I came back was think that I had to leave again. I had to get out on the oceans and demonstrate mastery because certainly I was not a master in the city. So uh, having spent all our family resources on this, I didn't have the resources to leave again. And that brought on a feeling of entrapment. I felt like I no longer had any choices and I felt like I don't belong in an area, a place where I'm not wanted. So I just wanted out. Uh, and that was a very dark place to be. So it took a while and, uh, by focusing on my health on, on heavy workouts and starting to dream up new ideas how does one outdo a certain navigation by power? Well, uh, I had to come up with new ideas, new challenges, and give myself that big goal ahead. Uh, that'll become my compass and my rudder and set me on a course that I can manage. Meandering and not having a goal did not help me.
2: What is that goal for you now?
0: Well, ocean rowing is where I have, um, 14 of my 15 Guinness World Records. There are routes that haven't been done before. uh, New challenges that one can take on. I have the um, grand totals in days at sea and miles at sea, and I can advance those each time I'll go out. Uh, Those are, those are good ideas. I would like to essentially get out and explore what's possible with an underpowered vessel in the world's oceans. And that's a good start. Uh, yeah. There are other ideas. I have to go back. I should. I should. I don't have to do anything, but I should go back and finish my sixth summit's project. Uh, after I climbed Mount McKinley in 2003 May, during my circumnavigation, I walked up Mount Koziosko in Australia with Nancy, and then Kilimanjaro in Africa also with Nancy and my 79-year-old father then. A dozen friends came from Seattle, having raised funds to build a classroom in Arusha, Tanzania, on the foothills of Kilimanjaro, where most of the porters come from for these Kilimanjaro visits that tourists do make. and. Um, yeah, I have Aconcagua, Elbrus, and Everest to go climb yet. So that definitely is my long-term to-do list.
2: Does that excite you to have those left to do, or does it feel like a burden?
0: Uh, it's never a burden. Uh, if When I have sponsorships and when I can figure out how to pay for this, I will be on the way to these one at a time, no questions asked. They're not a burden. I will get joy when I complete that six-sums project. I'm not done yet. I still have another 10 years in me to do serious projects. And then after that, I may move a bit slower, but I'll still be moving. Yeah, I,
2: just, I don't doubt it one bit. Just listening to you talk and listening to what you've done, I'm sure you have quite a few years left to do this kind of stuff. If, if you don't mind, I, I'd love to ask you more about that circumnavigation. Sure. You did tons of cycling and even more ocean rowing. Which of the two did you find to be the most natural for you?
0: Rowing I enjoyed more. It, being alone on the ocean, the vastness of the ocean, and appreciating how much power the ocean has and how little control we have over things. Understanding her behavior, and statistically uh, deciding a best choice and most likely to succeed route across an ocean, and going out and executing, fighting to stay on that route, all of those drew me in. In the uh, land phases, on the bicycling phases, as much as I liked the hard work and long hours on the bicycle, just challenging myself in that way. I did not like the idea of mixing with traffic. Uh, I had these, you know, uh, missiles, steel-caged missiles, passing by me at 60 miles an hour, and any one of which could have my name on it, any one of which could have a distracted driver texting. And I just did not appreciate that I had my life trusted in their hands. I didn't have control on that one. I did a lot of defensive writing, uh, but I'd rather be on the ocean and face nature than humanity, really.
2: You know, it's admittedly a lot more romantic to be killed in a storm on the ocean than to be hit by a 17-year-old that's texting.
0: (laughs) Well, think about it. Jason Lewis, uh, the gentleman I talked about earlier, the first to circumnavigate by human power, he was uh, inline skating across U.S., continental U.S.
2: Yes, I read about that.
0: Right. And then they were going to relaunch from San Francisco, and his partner went across by bicycle. He, uh, Jason decided he was going to skate across and he got run over by an old um, person in Colorado. And then he had to have surgery in on both legs. And as a result, he had damaged his pelvic joint, hip joint. And, you know, he finished the journey. But it was a long while for him to feel whole again and that he could restart the journey. Uh, anyway such accident could have happened to me. I did crash my bicycle when a bus pushed me off the road in Africa. And, uh, yeah, I had nasty cuts and road rashes, but I didn't have any broken bones, fortunately, continued the next day after cleaning my wounds.
2: Is that, was that the worst accident you had in the entire experience?
0: Yeah, on, on bicycle, yes. Okay. On, on the ocean you know i had a uh, little injuries here and there that i could tend to uh, nothing too terrible i had uh i had a crick in my neck one morning when i woke up and i had to make a neck brace for myself to straighten my neck give it a bit of traction and 10 days later i felt well again but i didn't stop rowing during that time um i had a back injury Uh, on the Bismarck Sea I arrived at Papua New Guinea with uh, a nasty nerve pinch down my lower back and that took about two two months to heal fortunately I had to wait out the cyclone season the typhoon season I should say
2: what was the scariest day that you had on that expedition whether it be in the boat or on on land
0: I think the most worrisome time I had was approaching the Great Barrier Reef uh, by a rowboat. I had ahead of time studied a dozen channels among the ribbon reefs of Great Barrier Reef, and once beyond once through those, I had to mark more than one path either southwest or northwest or west, so that each time I would come in and follow one of those predetermined courses that I had studied to mainland uh, and not try to figure it out on the fly because I, I may not have enough time. I had to fight the currents and work with the winds to navigate those reefs. So when I approached Great Barrier Reef, well... Of course, as was always the case, my plans went out the window and the seas were driving me to this one narrow gap I hadn't studied ahead of time. And I made this uh, half mile wide gap on my chart. I approached it just fine. But once I committed to enter it, there was ebb tide that pushed me back. So I was locked outside of the ribbon reefs. And the current was running northwest. The wind was from the northeast. It was pushing me toward the reefs. And all night I had to stay out there and fight and row toward the wind just to stay off the rocks as the current carried me to the other end of the ribbon reef. I ended up, uh, my approach was at about 7 p.m. or so. I ended up uh, rowing until about 5 a.m. and nonstop. And I didn't have time to prepare food or coffee to stay up or anything. Uh, So I pulled out some protein bars, energy bars. That was my dinner. I had uh, these, like in tea bags, you have coffee bags and grounds of coffee were in these. And I tore some of those, two bags. I swallowed, I washed it down with water. That was my coffee, make believe coffee, and carried on to the other end and eventually made it through. So it was nerve wracking to hear waves crashing on the reefs to my port side uh, all night. That was, I could hear that like a uh, waterfall, waves crashing. And that was a good reminder that I should not end up there. And had the winds picked up another five knots, it would have pushed me right onto those rocks and I could not let up. So that was a very worrisome episode. Another episode I had in Tanzania while I was bicycling and I was in these, in this lush strip, uh, with the pavement and I was making progress. Then I came up on construction. And they were building a new highway, and they closed off the road and directed all traffic to a service road on the side of the construction. And that service road, it was rainy season, was all slurry of mud. And with trucks and buses and everybody passing, there were two deep ruts that were about knee-deep in this brown slurry, looked like chocolate milk. And the big mound of mud in the middle. And just pushing my bicycle through that muck was an impossible proposition. It was taking too long. I had to avoid traffic as it passed. I couldn't get off of this because there was thick bush on either side. There was no escape. Uh, No option of camping. I didn't know what I was going to do when the darkness set. Yeah, uh, I didn't give up. I just kept going. I had no choice. And eventually, I was able to get on the new construction, the new road that they were putting together, but they were blocking traffic from it. But I was able to get on with it with my bicycle. There was no one to see. It was an empty highway, all for me, brand new. And after I rinsed all of my brakes and my shoes and I could bicycle again, I had the whole highway to myself, and made it to my destination in a hurry. Uh, so sometimes not giving up helps. Sometimes we don't give up because we have no choice, but to continue. Uh, yeah, those were some periods.
2: Isn't that funny that the, the perfect open road comes right after that very difficult and trying time?
0: Absolutely. That's a, there's a, there's somewhere.
2: I almost bet on it now, or oh, I do. It's if there's a moment either in life or on an adventure that is extremely trying, I know that if I survive this, something will break on the other side and I will have I will have a moment moments of peace following this soon after. It just seems to never fail. I'm sure you saw that time and time again.
0: Yeah. Um there is A word of caution there, though. Yes, in hindsight, when we succeed, all went well. We say to ourselves, we were right to continue and push through. Sometimes it takes wisdom to know when to quit. Uh, When we decide to stop, it needs to be for a good reason and well thought out. And we have the wisdom to accept that, not take it as defeat, but as a lesson learned and regroup and uh, approach that difficulty from a different perspective, from a different angle, with additional help or tools, we are better off. So there's a case made to be made for both.
2: Yeah, good point. Do you have experience with that? Have you had to quit any big adventures that you've started?
0: Well, uh, just to give an example from the journey, I started out from... Uh, California from Bodega Bay, July 2007. My intention was to go to Australia. I thought I'd be there in, no, oh, eight, nine months. Uh, it had been 10 and a half months, 312 days total by the time I was picked up north of Papua New Guinea. That season was a strong La Nina season. And in La Nina seasons, the equatorial winds, the northeast and southeast trade winds, blow stronger, and there is more weather on the west side of the Pacific. And so the strong southeast winds would not allow me to cross south of the equator. I ended up having to continue west. I tried to get off at uh, Costre and Nagoro, and I couldn't line up those islands, carried on west, and... Eventually, a typhoon formed northwest of me, about 400 miles northwest of me, near Palau. It became the uh, a Category 4 typhoon, strongest, second strongest in history in May. And that thing brought destructive winds, brought northwest winds. And I, with that, I was able to drop south toward Papua New Guinea shores. Uh, so I had lost control. I, I was at the mercy of the ocean. Uh, Had I been lucky and received El Nino conditions, like a strong El Nino conditions, like in 2015, which helped two rowboats to reach Australia from California, uh, I would have been fine. So at a certain point, I had to make a decision. I was running low on food. We were trying to do resupply. I was too far from land. Our supply team was in Jayapura, uh, just southwest of me. They didn't have a vessel with the range to come deliver the supplies to me. And at some point, I had to say, okay, I'll figure out the logistics later, whether I have to restart or what. But I need to get this boat off the water. And it was a warning. Uh, you're in the wrong hemisphere in the wrong season. You have to get off. So I came off the water, uh, with the help of Philippine fishermen who picked me up. And eventually they said, well, we'll drop you off at the same spot. You can continue your journey. And that was acceptable under the rules after the typhoon season. They picked me up, uh, in May, dropped me off again mid January. Uh, and I continued on the Bismarck Sea to land at Papua New Guinea. So that's one, for one spot where I said, okay. I cannot gamble this anymore. I need a controlled outcome. So when we had that option, we took it.
2: Holy cow. Yeah, that was probably a really good decision on your part. (laughs) So other than actual conditions on the trip with weather or with, uh, you know, something happening to your body, have you ever had to deal with other reasons for having to quit or at least pondering quitting, whether that be home life? Uh, or, or finances?
0: While I was bicycling across, around uh, coastal Australia, uh, the world financial markets were in turmoil. The sponsorships were weaker. They weren't happening. We, With Nancy, we had already exceeded $200,000 of budget deficit. And there was a lot of hesitation. Uh, what do we do? When do we call it quits? Uh, we decided to push forward, uh, but the compromise was I was not going to go to Everest or Elbrus. And by the time I got to Africa, Nancy had had enough. She kept saying, you know, you need to come back home. You're not just a, an adventurer. You're also a husband. To me, in the middle of the expedition, that sounded husband sounded very much like has been. And I didn't want to quit because I would have nothing had I quit having spent all that money. And if I left my boat behind my gear behind each time I fidgeted in this journey, took money from us, the boat storage, boat shipping back, the bicycle, the gear, myself going back and forth. I couldn't take time off. Uh, that would have cost us more money. And so we had to make a tough bargain. And that was that I would, Rush as quickly as possible to the finish at bodega Bay and bypass Pakancago as well, so those were choices made. that's when I changed direction that's when I held back and the circumstances outside influences uh, changed my helped me make up my mind about that.
1: By now, you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bent Gate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to BentGate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping, like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering.
2: So, have you found it difficult through your expeditions to find that work and life and expedition balance?
0: Well, the expeditions have become my life lately. And all I do is write about them, talk about them. And try to put new ones in motion and train, stay fit for the next one around the corner, be ready at a drop of a hat to head out there. An example to that is the Great Pacific Race that happened summer of 2016 um, where I partnered with Louis Bird, a British young man. He is the son of Peter Bird. Peter Bird was lost at sea in 1996 trying to row from Vladivostok to California. And he lived in the Russian River Valley near Santa Rosa. And uh, his friends became my... They adopted me. They became my uh, immediate support group. And... Among them was Kenneth Crushlaw. Uh, he had established Ocean Rowing Society to make sure that Peter Bird's accomplishments were known to media. And P- Kenneth Crushlaw had supported my efforts. And when I left in 2007 from uh, Bodega Bay, in the lead up to that in San Francisco, we met and uh, he brought me stickers of Peter's logo that he took across the Pacific. Way back when in, when he rode to Australia, uh, he uh, I applied those stickers, Peter's stickers on my boat, and kept them on ever since. So when Kenneth died, they brought his ashes to be spread in the San Francisco Bay. And during that ceremony, Louis was there. Uh, this race was going to take place, Great Pacific Race, was going to take place from Monterey to Waikiki in Hawaii. And he had brought a boat uh, and had a partner, all of it, uh spent all that money and effort. And a week, uh, a couple of weeks prior, his partner had to go in for surgery uh for health reasons. He had to withdraw. So he was alone and he had no experience and the race rules did not allow solo departures. So he needed a partner. I got the phone call. From after that ceremony, my wife was there to represent us. Uh, Would you row with me to Hawaii? I didn't think too hard about it. I said yes. And with Peter's son, we left Monterey and rowed to Waikiki. And we brought the record down in our category of boats, classic pairs, down to 54 days from 75. That was a significant improvement. So. As I was saying, I stay fit to be able to hop on these expeditions and have, on the drop of a hat. so I feel good about my lifestyle, if you will if you want to call it that. Um, so expedition focus has been the central to my life lifestyle for a long while now since two thousand three. I'm no longer my uh, office bound i t software developer project manager type
2: so so how do you support yourself then through this is a continued sponsorship or do you do side jobs?
0: I do speaking engagements I look for sponsorships i look I have become a captain licensed captain and now am a sailing instructor um, It is something I do. As is the case for all gigs in the gig economy, it's not a steady income, but it does bring us some spending money. We were lucky with my wife that the market improved in Seattle, and a year and a half ago, we sold our home, and with the difference, we were able to buy something in Gig Harbor uh, where we, didn't, we don't have mortgage anymore, which really took the pressure off. So if I can uh find sponsorships now, uh I can get back out there. I can get busy again with expeditions without much worry to sustain ourselves. We are working on a documentary about my uh, circumnavigation, all the footage I brought from the journey and is trying to bring that to fruition. Once we do, there will be a story to be told and a more presentable thing for us, for the expedition, for the journey. It'll give a, give everyone a better idea about what it was, what it, what it took to complete the journey. And perhaps that'll help, with more help for future expeditions. We'll see. It's It's all work in progress. Let me put it that way.
2: I'm sure it wasn't easy to take that kind of plunge, um, but I understand going all in on your passions. Do you find that? Do you find it more rewarding now to work on it full time, or do you find it? Uh, some people love it. Some people love the challenge every day. Others enjoyed their. Um, what they their expeditions and their trips more when they know it doesn't have to produce an income?
0: Uh, Sometimes I hesitate and I reflect and I say, you know, I need to bring in income. I need to make sure that I can earn to support my own expeditions. I have these thoughts that I could become a project manager again and spend my own money because I've already proven... What I can accomplish if I were to spend my own money. We know that already. (laughs) I need to. Right, right. (laughs) I need to be able to justify that as a professional outdoor athlete, I can also produce value for sponsors. So it, it is a learning process for me with 15 Guinness World Records. I. Think to myself, well, I need to be able to cash those chips in at some point, but I need to refine my story, my message. I need to learn from others, see what they're doing. At the same time, I need to stay true to my own instincts and to my, to who I am. I can only be so much of a salesman, but I am passionate about Nature, conservation, the plight of all species that are stressed due to human activity. I can talk about these. I can uh, wholeheartedly, uh, passionately speak my mind about these things. And certainly I would like to hold that ground. If I can do that with support, outside support, certainly. If it's going to be while I spend my own money, so be it. Uh, It might take longer, but I will stay on course.
2: It's a challenging world out there, isn't it?
0: It is. Uh, As much effort as I put into my expeditions and as much blood, sweat, and tears it takes to complete such expeditions, um, I am not an Instagram phenom. I see so many examples of popular social media sources let's say do i want to imitate do i want to be remain myself how much do i have to compromise or is it a compromise if i is it an improvement or a compromise what do i do uh these are fundamental questions that have to be answered to go forward while i go forward maybe and it still will take some time to sort And it may be as near as just finding that one believer who's going to say, yes, we are going to support this expedition, go do it. And I come back with five, six Guinness World Records, having improved my own records. And who knows, might get some media attention. And who knows, I might be more visible. I mean, things can change on a dime.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I just have to stay the course. I cannot be frustrated. I will not let myself drop into that dark space again as I did after my circumnavigation. I think I lived through that. I understand the reasons why it happened. I can reflect back and see how I shook it off. And there's a lesson learned from how I dealt with it, which is that I have the tools to encounter it. I can take it on, face it, and deal with it, set it aside, and carry on. So I feel stronger as a result. It's sort of steeled myself to take on any dark episode and come out shining uh just like after neurons passing, uh, I could have just taken my marbles and go go home hide in the corner and feel sorry more for myself, I decided, no, I'm going to take this experience and make something of it. Life goes on. I cannot stop. I will not stop. As difficult as it was for our relationship with Nancy, I kept coming back with quitting is not an option. And people ask me how I get across the oceans. Well, it's one day at a time, but quitting is not an option. You just have to be flexible and not Uh, get frustrated out there not to the extent that one would hang up the oars and say okay I'm done Um, quitting was not an option I had to keep going
2: that's the best lesson my mother taught me was I cannot quit something uh, that I start and it's led me to everything I've ever done Um, right there when I was 13 years old I wanted to quit uh, playing basketball and she said no you have to keep going and mm-hmm. and it's changed my life honestly but i will say this uh i know one way that you could get the two of the summits and that is an idea i've had for the last few years which is uh not circumnavigation but a human powered expedition from the south pole to the north pole oh my god um you would you would ski, cross-country ski, and pull your stuff uh, across Antarctica um, from the South Pole to to the edge. Um, row. You would row across what is the, the passage there between South America and Antarctica? Drake Passage. The Drake Passage, that's right. And then uh, ride your bike along the Pan American Highway. You could hit uh, Atconcagua, and then you could ride to Alaska, hit Denali finish northern Alaska, and then ski and make your way up to the North Pole. It's never been done.
0: Uh, For good reason.
2: (laughs) Drake Passage, pretty impassable.
0: (laughs) Uh, Making it to the tip of Antarctic Peninsula is going to be a tall order. It's a mountainous, very broken terrain. Uh, Getting across Drake Passage is going to be uh, a huge... Challenge, you won't be able to get across Drake Passage. It'll probably take you to uh, northeast toward uh, South George Island and places much like yep. uh, Jacqueline Hat. Yes. The seas go, that's where the winds go. And those are the, you know, you've heard of roaring 40s. Uh, well, you're going to be in screaming 50- 60s. <laughs> and... Uh. Yeah. So he uh, may find it easier to get to africa than south america and then from there north we all know that the arctic is now very much broken there's hardly any old ice left so travel on the arctic uh, is going to be very suspect my gut says oh boy that may be over me beyond (laughs) beyond my reach
2: (laughs) yeah i i I've been wanting to do it for years and I've never taken it very serious. And I I don't know if I ever will. Um, So far I'm I'm content with uh, bike touring. So until I really feel the need to do it, I figured I'd share it with you. You've, you've, You've got a way better chance than I do.
0: Well, keep thinking about it, it takes one person to get it done to show that it was possible. So at this point, <laughs> we don't know
2: <laughs> so with trying to get your name out there uh how can people find out more about you
0: there is the website e r d e n e r u c dot C-O-M. uh there's our nonprofit website aroundanoffer.org uh around hyphen n over and there is my linkedin page you can look it up E R D E N space eruc you can google my name you'll get hundreds of hits <laughs> so yeah there is there are there's information out there so yes that's probably the way to go
2: perfect all right well i appreciate you being on the show and i, and I hope we can stay in touch
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity, and I hope that we will have inspired a few people to not wait for a death to set them on course. I waited if people ask me, "Do you have any regrets and The only regret I have about what I've done and the way I've spent our resources, family resources and my time uh is that I started too late. So I would not have waited as long if I had a second choice.
2: Wow. Okay. Well, I I appreciate the honesty and I appreciate you sharing. We have a lot of young listeners and yeah, if you look at the dates and look when uh, at your age, you did did start later, which is good news for the folks that are just discovering it, but those Mm -hmm. that are still young and have the idea and have the desire, go for it now
0: wonderful thank you so much for the opportunity you have a wonderful time
2: yes sir absolutely all right see you take care hey thank you so much for listening if you know somebody that would make a good guest on the show or if you have a pretty cool story about the outdoors or adventure sports that you want to tell us please call us and leave a voicemail at 812-MAIL-POD that is 812-624-5763 uh, you can also send us an email at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. Uh, again, it is always helpful to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you'd like to be a supporter of the show, you can give five bucks a month at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. And links for all that stuff is also in the show notes. So thanks again for listening. And y'all get out there and do something so you can be on the show one day. All right, later. Don't forget, if you want to save 20% off the best backpacking food you're ever going to eat, go to peakrefuel.com and use ASP20 at checkout.